anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God's sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to join us today. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 2.14 as we continue our study there. Those of you who were able to join us last week um, online for our Facebook live streaming services know that I had preached this particular passage out of 1 John saying that it was going to connect well with what we would be continuing on with with our study today. And we're going to talk about this concept of three walls. And that idea will make more sense as we get a little further into our lesson. So Ephesians 2.14, this is what Paul writes. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. Again, we thank you for allowing us to unite together. We're thankful for churches like Bethel Baptist up in Savannah that two weeks ago began this adventure to step out and test the waters to make our churches and other churches like ours feel safer in this endeavor. And we just ask, Lord, that you would protect us, that you would allow us not to suffer any sickness because of this, but that this would just be an expression of our ardent desire to come together before you. And as we look at this passage in Ephesians, Lord, I pray that we would study it well, that you would uh, continue to allow our hearts and minds to be open to the depth and rootedness of this text as we seek after you. Bless me, Lord, as I give this message and remove from me any obstacle or agenda that is contrary to what you would have to be spoken today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I'm going to ask a very, very loaded question as we begin today. If I say wall, what comes to your mind? Pink Floyd. What was it? Pink Floyd. I didn't hear it. What was it? Pink Floyd. They said Pink Floyd. Sure, 1979. Fantastic album. Yeah. Was it Mindy? Was that you? Yeah. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, remind me at some point at a later date to tell you my story about that album. It's quite freaky. All right. Uh, so we have Pink Floyd. All right. So that one's off the board. What else do we think of when we think of Wall? Yeah. Donald Trump is, is, is election run in 2016. Uh, Macy. Berlin, sure, yeah, 1989, the Berlin Wall coming down, absolutely. I was going to say Great Wall. The Great Wall of China, absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, these are really, really good examples. Now, let me, let me pare this down and frame this a little bit of a different way. When we think of walls in Scripture, what types of events or stories or lessons come to mind? Nehemiah. Nehemiah, absolutely. Nehemiah and Ezra brought back after the exile of the, the Babylonian exile to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Mark? Jericho. Jericho, yeah. Probably the most famous wall story is the, the story of Jericho and how the walls came tumbling down. Uh, any, any others that come to mind? Any other wall stories? You guys nailed two of my three. The third one I thought of was the story right after Paul gets saved in Acts 9, where he gets lowered through a, a, a hole and a basket in the wall to escape the captors once he has professed 
confessed Christ. He's running for his life. It was the first of a series of events over the next 20 years of Paul's life where he was constantly preaching the gospel and then running from people who were trying to kill him. Uh, so the concept of wall is all over scripture. And I want to reread this passage. I originally read it to you in the New King James. I really like the NASB's translation and framing as well. So I'm going I'm to share that with you real quick. The NASB translation, which is slightly different, says this, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Brad, I'm going to put you on the spot. In a couple sentences, do you feel comfortable explaining the difference between dispensationalism and covenantalism? And if you don't feel comfortable with it, that's fine. I'll put somebody else on the spot. Go for it. Let's hear it. Uh, the difference with dispensationalism would say God deals with uh, different groups of people in different eras in different ways. Where covenantalism is a continuation of God's covenants through all of Scripture and history. Yes, that's a fantastic way to put it. So dispensationalism looks at Scripture and says in different eras, God uses different means and methods to communicate with people differently. And this would, how, this would be one way, a, a rough way that a dispensationalist would look at Scripture. They would say in the beginning, God communed in the garden directly with Adam and Eve. Then sin entered the world and God for a period of time appeared in visions like the burning bush. And then later, Later, God spoke through his prophets, and then later God spoke through his son, and then after his son ascended, God spoke through his church and the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a fair way to look at scripture. But it really starts to affect how you interpret the New Testament. If you believe Israel, when the word Israel appears in the New Testament, do you believe that that is the nation of Israel separate from the Christians, or do you believe that Israel is now a reference to the new church? The people of God are still referred to as Israel in the New Testament. Well, I'm going to share with you in the next two weeks, this week and next, next week, that I think this passage in particular, verses 14, 15, and 16, really seem to support covenantalism over dispensationalism. Now, if you are from a dispensational school of thought and you push back on that, that's fine. It's not a dividing line amongst churches or anything like that. I tend to look at scripture and say, where? Where is the most evidence weighted when we're deciding any, any difficult doctrine? In fact, one of the reasons, it is certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons that I am very Calvinistic in my understanding of salvation is the sheer volume of verses that speak about God's sovereignty over people's salvation versus the handful of verses that seem to suggest that it is we who choose and, and, and do not choose God. So I won't get too far off on that. Let me start here. Before we get into our dialogue about the three walls, I want to talk about the first thing that Paul says because it's critically important. He says, he, meaning Jesus, himself meaning the personhood of Jesus is our peace. This speaks to the physical, actual nature of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If anyone ever tells you that the physical resurrection doesn't matter, it's what Jesus taught 
that is important. And how many of you have heard that line of thought, either from a person or in something you've read? We don't really need to focus on whether or not the supernatural was real. What's important today, 2,000 years later, is what Jesus taught, namely how to, how to interact with other people. That's the main thing. And I know Jared went through this when he was at his previous church where he was stunned that people were minimizing the importance of the literal resurrection of Jesus. And this verse tells us why it is crucial that we believe wholeheartedly in the literal resurrection. It is because there was something incredibly material, something of physical matter that had to happen in order for us to have peace with God. And we know that this points to the sacrificial system and how Jesus fulfilled it. We know that there had to be a perfect, without blemish, uh, uh, sacrifice, one that held the law perfectly without any hint of sin, and that sacrifice had to physically die. It was not simply a gesture. It was not simply a symbol. That physical sacrifice in Jesus without sin had to physically die and then be resurrected by God. And we've talked about this in the past, that God resurrecting Jesus is his sign of approval that Jesus fulfilled his mission completely and perfectly without error. Then, and only then, do we have any hope in communing with God through Jesus. If the death on the cross is just a metaphor, if the resurrection is just a fancy story, then nothing has been paid on our behalf for us to have any right to have an audience with God. That's why Paul starts this by saying, for he himself, he himself is our peace, meaning the physical nature of Jesus is what grants us peace with God the Father. So after Paul says that, I'm going to make an argument today that there are actually three dividing walls that are being broken down. Paul says, um, as he continues, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Well, how in the world, Ben, do you read verse 14 and come away with there's three different walls being broken down? Well, follow me here. There's three different lenses by which you can read what Paul is saying. And I believe all three lenses are accurate, all three are appropriate, and depending on who you were and where you were when you read Paul's letter, you would perhaps put an emphasis on a different lens. Here's the first lens. It is the literal wall. The walls in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. Some of you know a little bit about the architecture of the great temple in Jerusalem, but it was essentially surrounded, it was a long, kind of like a football field-shaped building with a huge outer wall. The Gentiles were allowed past that outer wall into what was called the court of the Gentiles, so named because it was the place in the temple that the Gentiles were allowed to be. It was in the court of the Gentiles that Jesus drove out the money changers. Inside the court of the Gentiles was now the court of Israel or the court of the Jews. The Gentiles were not permitted to cross that wall. And then we know also there was another designation, a third designation inside even the court of the, the Jews which was the Holy of Holies, and only one man on each day, on the, um, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the high priest, after ceremonially be cleansing, could walk in there because it is that place where, G, where, where the Spirit of God actually thrived and lived. Now, we studied this a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, but we talked about the importance of the curtain being torn because it separates the Holy of Holies where God resides and it eliminates the lines of only the high priest 
can be in the actual presence of God. Well, now if you back out another step, Paul is now saying that another wall is being eradicated. If you think of it, this is a bizarre thing or a bizarre way to think about it, or maybe in the midst of coronavirus, it's a very appropriate example, but it's almost as, it's almost as if God has decided to get loose. Okay, and he used to be contained in the Holy of Holies, and now the first line, the curtain, has been torn with the death of Jesus. And God is oozing out now into the court of the Jews. And after we read what Paul says here, with this dividing wall being destroyed, now Jesus is amongst the Gentiles. So it used to be, or not Jesus, God. So it used to be pre-Jesus, God ministered to the Jews, gave um, blessing to the Gentiles, but was only present in his availability to the high priest once a year for atonement. Now we're seeing the scope of God expand. And it, here's the issue. Who has access to God is radically changing, okay? So think about this for a minute. I want you to use two perspectives on this. From the perspective of the Jews, think about how much this would, if you read this and understood that what Paul was saying is, now there is no more line, there is no more wall between the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. From the Jews' perspective, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jew and Gentile has always been separate. We are the ones that have true access to God. The Gentiles are not allowed to have that access. And God is saying, incorrect. Now Jesus has changed that. Also think about it from the perspective of the Gentiles. They are allowed to come close to God. They are allowed to uh, reap some of the benefits of the fruit of being near God and near the people of God, not because of nothing that they've done, not because of who their parents were. Through no decision of their own, they are destined to not be able to know about God, to never truly know God because they weren't born Jewish. Now, there is one biblical exception to this concept that I must point out. Who knows the name given to the people who were largely Roman, who found the idea of Yahweh, the singular God of the Jews, fascinating? They were fascinated by a monotheistic, singular God instead of their pluralistic, uh, polytheistic view. We see these people mentioned. Cornelius is one of these people. They were called as a term. Does anyone know the term in the New Testament given to these people? Anyone remember this? I thought someone would get this. The God-fearers. They would be, they would be called God-fearers. Basically what they were, for, for lack of a better, we might call them seekers today, but I think it's a little bit more than that. These were Romans who had said, boy, I think the Jews are onto something. I want to learn more about what it means to believe in one true God versus these many gods. And they were people who hung out with Jews, who did everything they could do within the Jewish tradition as long as the Jews allowed them to do that thing. They couldn't go into the court of the Jews, but they would spend a lot of time in the court of the Gentiles hearing the teaching. They would often attend temple as much as it was permitted for them to do so. And a small percentage of these God-fearers actually became Jewish. They went through, you could become a Jew. It was a very long and difficult process. And guys, it included circumcision as an adult. So yikes. But you could actually convert and become Jewish. And a small number of people did, but there was a large contingency of Roman God-fearers who would say, I have a very, very large and profound respect for the God of the Jews. I think they're on to something we may not 
be right. So the first wall is this literal wall being broken down that separates the Jews from the Gentiles. The second wall is the spiritual wall that separates sin from God. How many of you at some point in your life have heard or even used the bridge illustration to share the gospel with someone? Okay, good, good, good. So essentially the bridge illustration, a quick review for those of you who who do not know what that is, is basically it's an illustration, usually you draw it or you show it up on a whiteboard that shows man standing on one side of a cliff and then a huge impassable valley and God standing on the other side. And it's used to demonstrate all of the bridges that man will attempt to build, like moralistic living, um, like, like obeying the commandments and keeping the law, like living a pious, lifestyle or doing unto others, that they attempt to span this gap, but none of those things are good enough, and no matter how you try to get across that chasm, you fall short of God. The only thing that is able to bridge that span is the cross of Christ, and it's a way of illustrating that Christ is the uniting thing between God and a sinful man. But I wonder if maybe an even more appropriate illustration than the bridge illustration is the wall illustration. Let me put this up here and tell me what you think of it. There is a wall of our own building and it grows stronger and taller with every day that we live. With every decision that we make without Christ at the center of our being, no matter how moral these decisions may seem, it does not do anything to get us closer to God. Rather, it just strengthens and heightens this wall of separation. And this wall cannot be scaled It cannot be tunneled under, it cannot be reasoned with, and it certainly cannot be brought down, at least not by us or any of our ability. So let me me dig into that a little bit as you see this up on the overhead. Let me use some examples. Some people will spend their lives trying to scale the wall. If I study hard enough and I understand God, I can ascend and be one with him. This would be a very Buddhist thought, a very Hindu thought. Some will try to tunnel under the wall. There is another way. There is a way to get around what seems impassable. And if I use my ingenuity and my creative thinking, I can make myself comfortable with an alternative plan that is unique to me. This would be the postmodernist, the relativist, who says, what is truth for you may not be truth for me. Some. Many of us in American Christendom, we decide the best way to deal with the wall is to reason with the wall. Okay, wall, I acknowledge your existence, but I firmly believe that you want me to be with you at the top of that wall. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to commit any big sins, and I will generally be a good person, and you'll see that, and then you will allow me to scale the wall and be with you. Some try to deny the wall. I'm sorry, they try to destroy the wall. There is no God, therefore there is no sin. Everything is relative and therefore there is no wall. It is only an illusion. As we know, all of those attempts fall woefully short. This wall absolutely exists and every human being who has ever lived will have to reconcile with God and figure out how do we deal with this wall of sin that separates us from God. The third and final way in which Paul is illustrating that this wall is coming down is the wall between Israel and the Gentile world. Now, you may be saying, well, isn't that just what you said in the first example about the wall and the temple? It's a little bit more advanced than this. If we place what Paul says here in verse 14 into the larger narrative of what Paul has just said, if we look back at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, 
Remember what Paul just did. The two sermons in Ephesians we just came off of were Paul describing the stark disadvantages of being a Gentile. He says, if you're a Jew, you have, you have advantages you haven't even thought of. Well, now what Paul's teaching on the heels of that is he's saying that Jesus' sacrifice was so powerful that it turned a nation, Israel, that was once separated from the rest of the world and the purposes for the purposes of holiness, it turned that into one people so that anyone from any race, creed, gender, economic background, or previous religion could now be on equal footing with God if they surrendered their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let me clarify that, because as I read it, it, it confused me. I'm not saying that you are on equal footing with God. I'm saying that you, as a Gentile, are on equal footing with God with a Jew. So basically, everyone now has access. We see, going back to our first example, God is expanding beyond the Holy of Holies into the court of the Jews. He's now beyond the court of the Jews into the court of the Gentiles. And what's left beyond that? to the very ends of the earth. So if we see this passage through a covenantal lens, as Brad so aptly demonstrated, a covenantalist looks at scripture and says that there is a unified plan for the body of Christ throughout scripture. We assume that Jesus has come into the world as a savior to the world, and the line between Jew and Gentile after Jesus gets really, really blurry really quickly. Not everyone caught on to this right away. You guys remember the story of Peter's dream after Jesus has ascended with the, the sheet being pulled down from the four corners and the voice says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, I'm not gonna kill that animal and eat it because, because it's, 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 it's unclean and I'm a Jew. And the voice of God says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. I want you to go and find this guy. He's a Gentile. He believes in me. I want you to baptize him and his whole household. And all of a sudden, Peter's like, I guess Jesus is available to the Gentiles. And he goes back and reports that incident to the head church. Sometime later, Paul has a very interesting adventure where he is going specifically to persecute the Christians who are saying that Jesus is available to Gentiles as well. And Paul himself, the chief among the Jews, he becomes the missionary to the Gentiles, ironically. So a covenantalist would read the New Testament and wherever they saw the word Israel, they would say, well, that means the church because Israel is best defined as God's people. And who are God's people? The church. The truest definition of what Israel is, is the children of God. Okay, so what are our conclusions? Conclusions are this. Jesus Christ is the greatest unifying power in the universe, and maybe ironically, he unifies people by dividing those who are true believers from those who are not. At this point, you should probably be saying, what? Yes, Jesus unifies by dividing. He is a sword that unifies by dividing. And how does he do that? Well, let me share his own words as we close today with Jesus speaking in Matthew 10, 34, and 35. I'll put it up here so you don't have to turn to it. How many of you have heard people say, well, Jesus came to bring peace on earth? Right? Just me. Just me. Okay. How many of we, we sing a song, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward now. Now, how many of you would say, and I think that's true. I do think, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. But not in the way that most people who don't understand scripture actually think he accomplished that message. That mess that that mission. Thank you. I got it. I'm good. Thanks for asking. If you are going to have peace with your cancer. 
The surgeon has to eradicate the cancer, right? The surgeon has to cut out the bad to allow the good to heal. So it is by division peace is achieved. Jesus says something remarkably similar when he rebukes the people that he's speaking to in Matthew 10. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword's a pretty good dividing tool, right? Generally, if a sword was used in its best, well, I don't know if it's best, but in the way it was designed, it was good at separating the head from the rest of your body, right? It's a great dividing tool. He says, I did not come to bring peace. I brought a sword, for I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Ooh, sign me up. This sounds wonderful. How enraptured in chaos is the family with one of two scenarios, one Christian amongst a bunch of unbelievers makes for an interesting Thanksgiving or equally as volatile, hopefully a little bit more peaceable, is the family of Christians with that one or two black sheep in the family, right? Jesus said, you are either going to accept what I say or you're going to deny what I say. And the people that you think are your family, blood is thicker than water, garbage, they are not your family. Who is my family? Well, I'm looking at them. And I'm not just looking over there. I'm looking at them. Because by the power of Jesus's unification, and he unifies us by saying, I, by the power of my son, have separated you from the consequence eternally of your sin. You are one in and with me. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Do you ever think that maybe that's what Jesus was alluding to? when he's teaching and his blood brothers come to him and say, um, your mom needs you. And Jesus says, I am with my brothers and sisters. I am with my family. You know why we've been miserable for 10 weeks? Miserable might be a stretch. Well, Rob's been miserable. <laughs> Do you know why I've been miserable for that long? Because we haven't been able to be physically with our families. And this is a big day for us. This is a big step for us. So when I see this, this concept in scripture, I get marvelously excited because I say, Jesus came, laid down the law, said, this is holy, this is sin. Look at me and decide. And everything was rewritten. Lines between Jews and Gentiles, lines between what is Israel and what is the church, and lines between who is your family and who isn't your family. Keep those things in your heart. We will continue this dialogue next week. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbc-ashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again right here next week.